0: Hello and welcome back to part two of my discussion with Dr. Wagner. This is the Hounfeld Unit Podcast and I'm Cody Quirk, your host. In part two of my discussion with Dr. Wagner, we discuss moving forward with the core exam during the COVID crisis. What are our plans for 2021 and moving forward? What specific challenges do a new testing format bring? And what have we learned from our other recent failures from other boards during the pandemic, including the American Board of Surgery? We will also discuss maintenance of certifications and some of the questions you may have regarding your ongoing certification and why it might be important. What does the 200-question cutoff really mean? What about the quality improvement requirement? Thanks again for listening in. Kind of brought up the, the 2021 administration, so let's go ahead and shift to that right now. Um, so, what kind of kept us from having a remote exam and previously? Um, and obviously, we know why we're doing it in the future. Uh, do you see it staying that way? Um, well, there's kind of two questions in there. So, so let
1: me start with you know uh, what kept us from doing in the past, and it was the, it was those constraints. It was the practicality of um, you know what would we have to give up to move to a remote exam. And, and it just didn't, you know, we hadn't reached that tipping point yet, right? We, we you know, it would have been more convenient in terms of travel. Um, the, and, and from that standpoint, you know, certainly I, I understand that. And it was a burden, you know, that, that people had to travel to our exam centers instead of Pearson View. The reason we used our exam centers, of course, was we could control image quality, including ambient lighting better. And the, um, and the commercial test centers wouldn't even do things like uh, uh, brightness and contrast. And they didn't do a zoom and pan; they, they couldn't guarantee that at their test centers. So, so the, the fundamental tools that you're used to uh, as a radiologist were just not there, and, and uh, so we had to build these test centers. And um, and I think arguably they worked, it, meaning we we got down to a valid test because we took out all those variables. In fact, the two test centers in Chicago and Tucson were built exactly the same, so that if you went to one versus the other, you didn't have an advantage. We we checked the lighting, we you know we. we really attempted to design it exactly the same so we could take out all of the variables that might introduce differences in performance so so there are reasons to want to do this because because all the remote possibilities and, and we're dealing with some of them now uh, as we go into 2021 um, you know we have to admit that it's a less secure example. and uh, and there's just no way around that we can't control for uh, you know two aspects of security one is the the um, the ability to perhaps take content and then share it with others. But the other is to to uh, use what is called uh, alternative methods of success, which basically is, you know, we turn the test into an open book test potentially if we haven't controlled for that variable that someone could look something up on the internet or on their phone or in a, in a textbook, et cetera. So, um, so we acknowledge this is a less secure exam. And uh, But that said, right now, it's the only way we could do it. It's the only way we could guarantee, and that was the critical piece, that, that the current pandemic wouldn't adversely uh, impact individuals' ability to go to the next step, either to become board certified or the next step toward board certification. So in the case of the core, that's a step we also have people who, who would have taken the certifying exam in uh, 2020 and, and won't because there's nowhere to take it. So um, there's no way to orchestrate that. So the, the problem is what it gets me to is that your second question, which is are we going to continue it indefinitely? And I'm glad you asked that because, um, because I have a, a vague answer, but it is the most honest answer I can give. And that is, mm-hmm. we hope so. We're not preparing this for it to be a temporary measure. We're we're working at this, and I've said this to the staff at the ABR several times. You know, this is not a, a temporary thing. This is a this is not a temporary fix. It's something that we anticipate will be our new model indefinitely. However, uh, I've also said to the staff that 2021 is a giant pilot exam. It's actually a series of dozens of pilot exams uh, throughout all four disciplines: radiation oncology, medical physics, interventional radiology. And, diagnostic radiology, so um, so we're viewing as a pilot, and uh, and the, the most troubling thing, actually, is that we're trying to optimize the candidate experience to generate a valid result that points back to the credibility of the process. The same thing we started talking about, what does board certification mean? If it's not credible to the public, uh, then we have a problem, because, um, because suddenly, someone could have an asterisk next to their score, you know, yeah, you passed, but that was the year that a whole bunch of people found a way around the security measures or whatever, and I, I don't want to emphasize security too much because because you know we have thousands of, of candidates for our exams, and and you know overwhelmingly, people are good people. They're professional. They want to do a good job. They've worked really hard, and and they want to demonstrate how hard they've worked and what they've accomplished. And it and it's really obviously a very small minority. Fortunately, a small minority um, that. That really circumvents the process, could make it so that we have to go back to a model similar to what we were using in the past. I don't know exactly what that would look like. We could go right back to exam centers in 2022. But our plan is, um, you know, as I say, we built this for the long-term view and uh, and over that horizon. And we hope that whatever bumps we run into, whatever we learn during these pilot phases can be addressed or are insignificant enough that they don't negatively impact the result and the result that you want that i want, that that our candidates want is a valid credential when it's all said and done does that answer your question yeah that
0: that definitely does and i I think that that's the absolute most important thing is having that valid result that you talked about that we can all kind of trust um do you think these uh testing centers or whatever uh, third party you were going to use are are more well equipped to handle the core exam now than they were a few years ago when you were initially making this decision.
1: No, so so the as far as the image based content we still um, we're we're considered very small. You can think about it in terms of the SAT or the LSAT or the MPAT, I mean, you know, uh, these are big things. Even other boards are much bigger than we are and and, and the boards as a whole even taking in PEDS and internal medicine family, and you know, three big boards, and then 21 other smaller boards, really don't get the attention. Even the boards as a whole don't get the attention of the commercial test centers. We're just not big enough. Uh, and, and and we didn't anticipate that that was going to happen anytime soon, that, that uh, we were going to find that they were going to accommodate us. So instead, what we're doing is, we're going to get out of testing centers altogether. And, and there are two reasons. One is related to the images, right? We, we can't count on the image fidelity to, uh, It could be very good at one particular test center, and it could be not so good at another one in the same city uh, because the the lighting's different or the monitors are different, whatever. Uh, But the other reason is that the unpredictability of the pandemic entering into 2021 could mean that, yeah, we could change our exam so that it could be administered there, but these centers now have limited seats and it would be based on social distancing, and they could find themselves if we see a late fall a resurgence of COVID, they could find themselves, uh, you know, back to closed, and and uh, that would be disastrous, I think, for our candidates. So, you know, there's prep time that goes into this. There's there's emotional preparation. There's intellectual preparation. There's actually scheduling uh, concerns for, for many of the people taking the tests. So, um, so the idea was to to basically take that variable well, out because we don't control that. Number one, we don't control the virus. Number two, we don't control the test centers. So, so what we're going to go to for the computer-based exams is something that will be able to be taken in, in you know, your home office or, or your living room or your uh, potentially your kitchen. I mean, it has to be a place that doesn't have, uh, uh, you know, walls covered with with uh, differential diagnoses on it. <laughs> so I hope that's not the kind of wallpaper you would use, but but it has to, so it has to be reasonably secure. But at the same time, uh, you're going to be able to choose the location within a certain very uh, wide parameters, and and likely to be able to take it on a laptop. So uh, the only thing we have to establish, and we're taking uh, lessons from higher education on this, is that we're likely going to need sort of a webcam, and, and they do this all the time. You know, organic chemistry finals for, uh, you know, for sophomore year in college are using these remote testing platforms. So what we're doing is borrowing those vendors, and, and specifically now I'm talking about computer-based exams that we use for diagnostic radiology. We can talk about the oral exams if you'd like as well. But for the computer-based exams, we'll just be doing what college has done for years with online testing and online courses. And uh, we're confident that that, uh, that that will be number one, very, we hope, convenient for most of the candidates who can, you know, no travel, just uh, a few days uh, of time and you know, a few sessions over each day uh, to take the exam
0: in whatever environment they choose. I think the, that will kind of help take the emotional stress and uh, uh, psychological stress out of some of it at least. And uh, the, it is an important point to, that this is, even though it's new to us, it's not new to higher education to do these sorts of exams. Yeah, the only caution
1: we have, and, and, uh, and of course we did have a problem with the American Board of Surgery. They, they uh, I think, gave it a good try and, and they really put it together very quickly and they admitted that so this is public they, they had some webinars that were public and, and uh you know they made the decision in april and administered an exam in july and, and of course it uh, very publicly and and uh you know they called it a disaster i mean I, and I suppose that's probably what it was especially for you know hundreds of candidates who had set aside time had had, had prepared for this exam that that didn't uh, couldn't be executed yeah. uh and and that's what one of the reasons the abr has looked to Really, lengthen that timeline. One of the common themes we encountered when we spoke to multiple stakeholder groups, program directors, residents, um, chairs chairs of departments, uh, was uh, they kept saying, "Well, this is easy. You just throw it together." I mean, you know, higher ed does this all the time, and we said it's not easy because higher ed has never done it. In fact, no one has really done it in a high stakes environment like this, where we're talking board certification or not board certification. For example, the uh, NMLE they haven't done it. You know they haven't uh, tried to do this, and and uh, even the MCATs, as of last time I saw, they they weren't considering doing it either. That they weren't going to provide an at-home version. Um, so so there, that's part of the challenge. Is number one, we're image-based, so we need to be mindful of that, and secondly, we are uh, in an environment that that's very much high stakes, and we want to make sure again that it's a valid credential when we're done. Uh, so we're we're trying to move ground and. and uh, we're working. This is an everyday phenomenon right now at the American Board of Radiology. It's, it's, I'd like to say, it's nearly all day, every day, that we're trying to get this done so that we can, in early 2021, roll out these exams. But that seems like a long way off, and um, and it seems like something that you know, as I say, everybody's kind of saying, "Hey, Zoom works," or "or use this vendor or that vendor with off the shelf uh, software for for uh, remote uh, proctor functions." And we said, "Yeah, it's not that easy. There's a lot more to it than,
0: than that." Yeah. I think, uh, like you pointed out, the American Board of Surgery, for, for listeners who, who aren't really aware of that, uh, their board uh, administration in uh, this summer uh, essentially failed the day of the examination. The uh, software that they chose. Uh, was not working properly for some test takers and then also they had some security issues as well with proctors and those sorts of things so and from like you said from their own perspective it was a complete disaster and reading about it it sounds like it was so did we are we kind of trying to talk to them so that we can learn lessons from them or Uh, uh,
1: absolutely in in fact there's been a a lot of um, sharing back and forth among the uh, the boards Uh, I mean an awful lot of it does get down to, and, and this was again admitted publicly on on one of the webinars. I, I had watched all three of them and uh, that they've had thus far. And I think it was the second one where uh, Dr. Bysky, who is my equivalent at American Board of Surgery, she she admitted that it was uh, basically the, the testing, the the QA that would go into it from an IT perspective in advance just hadn't really been done. There was no time, uh, and, and I think they really, you know, I, I'm surprised that they. Didn't, got to a point where they really thought they had something they could do and I believe it was less than 90 days total. Uh, they had different wi- uh, reasons to really focus on that July window. It has to do with timing of fellowships and uh, relative to, to surgery uh, residencies closing out. And and July is like protected time, I guess, for that. So they, they had this very narrow target they had to hit. And of course, you know COVID is a, a late March phenomenon really. Uh, so um, so I, I, I admire their effort, but, uh, but they admitted that um, in, in some ways, uh, I shouldn't say cut corners necessarily, but I think they felt that with more adequate testing, they could have worked out the bugs ahead of time instead of, you know, that day finding out that, hey, this is just not gonna work. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was, you know, an execution. And that's what we're trying to avoid is that execution piece. If the model's not perfect, you know, as I say, everything's a pilot, but if it doesn't execute well, uh, we've got a problem because we've got hundreds of candidates at a time who are impacted negatively by that
0: and that's really what we're focusing on um, so the uh, shifting gears here a little bit um, can we talk a little bit about maintenance of certification and kind of how how it's come together and and where the board currently stands on that
1: yeah so um, you know it again for those who aren't familiar uh, the you know it's got four basic pieces, uh, the first is professionalism. We let licensure serve as that uh, proxy for professionalism because we can't come into your practice and measure that. But major professionalism issues, uh, you know, whether they be fraud and abuse or, or the things that would impact your license, we, we trust the license, That's, that one's easy. Um, part two is the uh, CME portion. So, and again, your state uh, laws, most states, not all, but most states have a, a minimum CME requirement. And we merely add on uh, what's called self-assessment CME because that's important for identification of gaps, right? So, and, and in fact, any durable CME it's is easy. We have so much available. I mean, you talk about societies that just produce this stuff more than you can really even, even get through as, as many of you know. Um, well, I mean, even
0: right now as we're recording this, the uh, ACR has some CME from a book club that they're currently doing, so if okay. you can even get it that way. So,
1: so there you go. So, so provided and, and, and really, how you know it's it's enduring material is is you had to you know, take a test, basically. You know, you had to answer questions. You you know, you read something, and and then uh, and I'm not going to advocate for any particular product. I think they're all wonderful, but they're all readily available. So, so step two, you know, or or uh, uh, the second component really isn't a big deal either. Um, part three is the exam, and, and up until either I think it was early 2017, um, we had the exam. In fact, I, I am old enough, of course, to have you know what we call the lifetime certificate or, or non-time limited certificate. Uh, but but I was enrolled in MOC because the, you know that's part of being a board volunteer. Hey, if you're gonna make other people do this you got to be involved in the process so so I went and took my test and I took it early and if I had waited in fact we would have introduced OLA online longitudinal assessment I would not have had to take it I took it early kind of just to see okay what's this like and mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and, and the right after that we decided no we're going to give up on the every 10-year exam now there were reasons to do that that were practical that is that people had to take time off from work they had to fly to either Chicago or Tucson again for the same reasons we talked about earlier that it, we needed image fidelity there and, and we needed security to do that and then um and it was really a big deal you know for this this sort of uh, you know looking back on it, it it really was onerous so we were looking for solutions to that anyway and um an online longitudinal assessment came along now, it offers several advantages again some practical and that is that uh you don't have to travel uh, it's, it's every day, uh, or every week in, in our case, uh, with, uh, two, uh, questions that show up in my inbox, uh, every Monday morning, and they are relative to my, to my practice. Meaning I can choose what practice areas I want to take these in, uh, that are closely matched to what I actually do. So for you as an MSK radiologist, presumably you would choose three areas you can do it in thirds and a hundred percent of your content then is, is musculoskeletal. Uh, so it's tailored to your practice, which is important because, again, we're trying to reassure the public, right? And, and it does us no good to test you in, in mammography if you don't do mammography and, and uh, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, so the, the other advantage was that every 10-year exam was a point in time. And and it really isn't very useful because then, you know, hey, you study really hard for this or you might not. I mean, I, I, I got to admit, I leaf through some books because I was uh, actually testing an area that I, I don't consider my strongest, I was testing in, in neuro, as opposed to what I really am, which is body imager. But, but I'd leave through some books. I probably knew more when I took that test than I had known in five years, because I actually did pick up some books and look at that. But the fact is, once you take the test, then you just go back to your old habits and you're doing your CME and you're trying to keep up, but the fact is you, you're really not part of an, an active process. And what online longitudinal assessment, or as we call it, OLA does, is, it is it's a formative process too, because it gives you feedback. We provide a rationale. When I miss an item, which happens occasionally, I then get a very similar, not the same case, but I get something similar within the next several weeks to kind of say, oh yeah, did, the, did I learn anything from that? Uh, and it points out your gaps, right? It points out, so if I'm shown an example of something and I look at it and I go, oh, I never not even heard of this. Uh, you know, that's my opportunity to go back. And that's rare, but it, it's my opportunity to go back and, and learn about it. And that's been arguably the biggest improvement in, in maintenance and certification, or you know, what we sometimes call continuous certification. This idea that you know, the public wants us to keep up with what we're doing and, and, uh, and, and do it in a way that can be measured somewhat objectively. And uh, so that, that's been the goal. But this, as I say, is both a summative process, which is an attempt to get an assessment so that we can set a threshold and kind of say, hey, we're, we're going to define competence as, as X, and then uh you know above that you know you're 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 doing okay but you can still learn from this process you can still uh, improve you can you get better um uh, so arguably that's been i I think as i say the kind of the the biggest improvement because there's no traveling for a test there's no anxiety in in the weeks or months leading up to this there's no particular study time because what we're testing is knowledge that you probably should bring to work every day and, and for more definition, you can check the website, but it's basically walking around knowledge, the kind of thing that I should know as a, you know, call myself a general radiologist. That's probably the easiest title to put on me uh, in my recent private practice. And I should know this without having to, to look it up. I should know these things without having to, uh, you know, call a colleague or, or show a couple of, of uh, fellow radiologists um, because they're, they're, they're really kind of basic things that I should be able to recognize every day for what they are. I'll
0: confirm that. I think, I, I, like you're correctly assumed, I take the MSK ones and uh, I find them to be mostly questions that should be walking around knowledges, especially for someone who's an MSK fellowship trained radiologist. But it's also something, a, a level of knowledge I would expect of a non-specialty MSK um, radiologists to know if they were reading MSK essentially, yep. so I think that that's that's pretty accurate. I found that the OLL has been OLA has been pretty non-intrusive in terms. It's easy to to just do the the questions whenever they come out every week. Um, do your three or four questions, and you know if you only want to do your what is fifty two questions correct um, per that's year, right. then you can stop and have six months off. So. And, and a lot of people do that. We have other people actually who are answering every week. So we have
1: uh, some people who are going to get to their uh, 200 question, uh, and and that number is important because that that's when we start to reach statistical validity to be able to actually make a decision. Uh, you know, to to examine you know my performance, for example. And I, I confess, I didn't. I did. I did somewhere between 50 and 100. I didn't do all, all 100, but. Um, but we're coming up on that and we're soon to introduce uh, within the next few months and, and actually that was pushed back just a little bit because we have so much attention dedicated to the remote exams that we have to administer in 2021. That we had to take our attention away from this, but sometime before the end of the year, we'll be introducing a, a performance feedback so that at least you know where you are, even though we can't statistically you know, be, be guaranteed about that, but at least we can uh, give you some sense of, hey, where do I stand? You know, and, and, mm-hmm. Uh, are trying to respond to that, it's a very reasonable request. You know, I ask you these questions, okay, how am I doing even before I get to uh, the 200 questions?
0: So, so I think there is a little bit of confusion out there about the 200 question, Mark. So can you explain a little bit about exactly what happens once you hit that uh, threshold? Sure, in, in fact, it
1: brings, it brings up another point in, and you referred uh, earlier in our conversation to how we establish competence. And uh, uh, there's a psychometric tool called an Angoff rating. And for those of you who are enrolled in uh, OLA, you're aware you're invited to be a, an Angoff rater, which means that you set the difficulty of the questions or you help set it. And, and it's a statistical exercise where people basically say, okay, is this a hard question or an easy question? The reason that's important is the test is not graded on a curve. We don't have a specific threshold of questions you have to get right. The number you have to get right is dependent on how hard they were. And, and your colleagues, your peers all over the country are establishing how hard they are. Some are easy, some are harder. Um, and uh, uh, and that establishes uh, sort of okay, if, if I took 200 items uh, over, you know, as you said, 50 items a year, it, that's what it takes to get to a valid sample. And my passing threshold, and I'll just guess, it, it's somewhere, let's say, between 70 and 85, but I, I don't want to give a number because I don't know what it is because it would depend on which questions I got. If I got questions that were hard, my passing threshold is a little lower. If they were easy, my passing threshold is a little higher. Um, and, and so we, we tried to build some rigor around the statistics for this to kind of say, number one, we want to collect an adequate sample that we can, you know, come to a, a, a decision that is a score um, that, that means something. And at the same time, this is, in some ways, is crowdsourced, right? We're, we're basically using Angoff ratings that are generated by your peers and assess the difficulty level of the, uh, of the items
0: themselves that comprise your
1: pool. Of, uh, of questions. So that's, so. That's so if you're upset
0: to. about the level a question gets, you should blame your peers and not necessarily the answer. <laughs> that's right.
1: Well, you you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I actually intentionally don't do it because I don't want to influence the process. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems like it's kind of circumventing, although my vote would count the same as yours, you know, it, mm. it wouldn't matter. Um, but uh, we're very, we're very careful. In fact, you're judged relative to your peers in a similar practice environment uh, for those that we recognize for fellowship training and things like that. So, uh, so we do adjust for that as well. Uh, there is one other piece to, to MOC, and that is part four, uh, which is sort of the professional quality improvement piece. And uh, we decided, oh, this about five years ago, to make this, uh, I should say, non-redundant with other activities that you might do that are part of your practice, meaning there was no need to go off and do a, a special project or anything else. And, and I'll use a few examples. If you do a, uh, breast imaging and you're involved in MQSA, that counts. So you, your box is checked. You've got part four covered because you're involved in something where the federal law or you, you know, measure your outcomes and then you get feedback on that. Um, if you are involved in any sort of peer review in an organized way in your department, uh, then you're covered too. And, and, and again, I don't want to use trading, but, but obviously the most popular would be Radpeer or something like that. And, and uh, that, that also, you know, you're covered, you're doing something that is a, an examination of your own professional quality judged in that case against benchmarks and, and uh, really assessing how you're doing with an eye getting better, right? So, so we don't need special experiments. Oh, I'm going to track my turnaround time, you know, is it the old adage that if it was easy to measure, it probably didn't mean very much, right? And, uh, and and so everybody was doing turnaround time when this first started. But as I say, several years ago, we just said, no, if you're doing something that that matches this, you don't have to do something else, you're, you're covered. I think the challenge would be for very small practices that don't have a hospital base, because, you know, the, the Joint Commission or some other accrediting orders defines a review activities. And if you're off by yourself, and, and again, you don't do mammography, then you might struggle to come up with some tool that yeah. uh, checks
0: that box that, that basically covers the part for the professional quality improvement piece so of, of MFC. For those folks, there are some uh, resources out there, right? Like the American college of radiology has some PQI projects that they can sign up and work with other folks at different institutions or, or practices.
1: That's right. And, and again, it should apply to a small number of people because if, if you're at a U.S. hospital, if, you, if you're on a medical staff like that, you're, you're likely already covered yeah. by something. But you're right. There are other tools. Um, and some of the other societies have some as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not hard to come up with one. It's just we didn't want to have people to have to duplicate the effort that
0: they're already making uh, along these lines, along the idea of professional uh, your practice quality improvement. Yeah. So you think that the maintenance of certification so far has performed as it's as it should, and and you're pretty happy with how it looks?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we certainly have critics who say that you know there, there's no science that says that it impacts patient care, and, and there certainly is limited science, and I especially use that in radiology, right? I and mean, one of the hardest things in radiology judges outcomes, right? Because we're we're one very small piece of um, you know, for one thing, we're largely not therapeutic, although there are exceptions to that too, but but, but by and large, of course, we're a small piece of a patient's outcome. And, and, and whether you interpret their, uh, their knee MRI correctly or not, well, there was still a surgeon involved or there was physical therapy involved or there there's the patient compliance. There were other pieces that entered into that outcome, which means you need a large N in order to, to ascertain outcomes. So it's, it's hard to judge um, whether or not means certification or even really baseline board certification means anything um, when, we're, when we're talking about outcomes. There are lots of variables. And the other problem is that the N of, of non-board certified physicians in, in the United States is actually fairly small. So it's, it's hard to compare sort of that group relative to another group that is board certified. And, and I think that's a valid criticism. It's, it's not, the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get at the evidence basis for this. Um, but as they say, a, a lot of it's based on sort of this admittedly intuitive piece and again, the expectation of the public—that uh, you know, how would how would they judge us, or how would you judge your colleagues? You know, I, I'm going to judge a colleague who who you know goes over and above the CME requirement that they're required to get, or or uh, you know, again takes peer review very seriously. I'm going to judge them higher and, and, uh, uh, than I would somebody who just is just trying to get by. And, and thankfully, I've been in my career surrounded by that first group—the people who really want to do a good job. They want to pursue excellence. And MOC gives you an opportunity to do that. Uh, it's not perfect, but I, I think it's it's a very high credential. It's a very high standard, and it does it does get me to another point, And that is that it's the rigor of the process that makes it credible, right? If, if this were really easy, and, and there are a few uh, boards out there that just say just do your CME and we'll, we'll give you a certificate, um, generally that's not acceptable to your hospital's uh, you know credentials committee. But but you know that's taking arguably a shortcut, it's kind of saying, well, yeah, but we don't want this to be too easy. We want this to be something rigorous, something that again, at the end of it, you can kind of say, you know, you know, is this a valid credential? Is this valued by the public? Therefore, it's valued by me as that professional engagement process. Yeah,
0: so um, lastly, we'll shift gears here a little bit. You kind of talked a little bit about the oral exams earlier, but uh, what, what is the plan for those going forward?
1: Okay. So, so, of course, we still have oral exams in, in medical physics, uh, radiation oncology, and in interventional radiology. And, uh, and those two during, course of course, the pandemic in 2020 had to be postponed. Um, so what we're doing there is a, a mix of a video conferencing uh, platform off the shelf, and it could be any one of the half a dozen vendors you could name that's just any video conference, so that the examiner and examinee can see each other and talk to each other. Uh, the the second piece that we have to build, and that is the exam platform, and, and it's not that easy because you're sharing a screen. You have to be able to share a mouse for some of the um, some of the, the elements of the exams, especially for radiation oncology and physics. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we, we need to be able to show the cases and whatever clinical information, um, and and then those images might segue into other images, so you can picture an interventional radiology case that starts off with a chest radiograph. Goes on to an arteriogram and ends up with a, a post embolization picture, or something like that. And uh, uh, so, with that in mind, we're you know, the challenge for us is to is to build that platform, that the test platform, so that the examiner can uh, because they're going to be remote too. Uh, remember, the individual is going to have that same opportunity. They're not going to have to travel. They're going to be sitting, you know, just as you are now, and, and they're going to be able to uh, take the exam. Over about the same time intervals, we're trying not to change. Again, just as we, as we were with computer-based exams. We don't want to change too many variables. We're going to keep the test about the same. And at the same time, we want to uh, make it so you can take it from, from your home. You don't have to travel. Uh, in the past couple of years, they've been traveling uh, for those three disciplines, uh, physics, radiation, ecology, and interventional, been traveling to Tucson to take this. But uh, you know we don't know if, if travel is going to be wide open in the spring or not. Uh, so, so the hope is again, as as you said earlier, the hope is that this works and that we can continue this model in the future. Uh, but I think you would agree it's it's a much better experience for the candidate. They don't have to travel to a hotel. They, uh, you know, the, the anxiety that it produces, kind of being out of your element. This is just going to be something I hope most people are pretty comfortable with. Is you know, video conferencing or video calls. I mean, it's it's how we're celebrating birthday parties today, right? right. So it should, so, should definitely uh, be comfortable with it, right? So I, I don't want to make an analogy between the uh, the oral certifying exam and a birthday party, but at the same time, it's, mm-hmm. it should be uh, right. should be something people are comfortable with, and and should be convenient uh, for the candidate. So again, we're we're addressing issues of the experience for the candidate, and at the same time, we want to make sure that it's a secure process and, and that kind of thing. But uh, um, but I hope it'll work out. So far, we've gotten. You know feedback um and uh i failed to mention we've we've met with stakeholder organizations uh in, in july extensively we had i think 13 lined up in eight separate sessions uh, that were inputs from program directors in various specialties within radiology we're doing it again the week after labor day uh and follow up just to kind of say here's what we've learned so far here's where the, we see this process going maybe it has a little more definition around it by then uh, but so far, people are, are seem very excited about it. it. It really removes that element of uncertainty that is, hey, am I even gonna be able to travel to, to take an exam in the spring? And, and how are you gonna maintain distancing and everything else? And, and yeah. all that, All those variables were taken out.
0: I think we can all appreciate that right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Um, if there's anything else you'd like to say before we uh, wrap up here, I, I'll let you have the floor for another minute or two. But um if not we can end it there.
1: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today. I mean this is uh, you, you can see I have a certain passion for uh, for what we do at the ABR and uh, everybody I work with has that same passion whether they' are the volunteers we have you know over a thousand uh, that, that contribute in various ways to the exam processes. I've got a staff of nearly a hundred people that's excited and at the same time like me a little terrified about trying to do this uh, so quickly but uh, we're confident we can get it done and uh, and I would just say to your listeners, if if anyone has uh, questions, they can reach out to me at the ABR, and, and I'd be glad to take questions, uh, you know, as they come. We uh, really would like this to be something that people are not afraid of, that people value because of what it means to their professional standing and what it indicates to uh, you know your colleagues and the patients that you take care of. But uh, thank you again for for having me for this.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on. I think. Uh we all appreciate the transparency that you're bringing and the the willingness you have to even come and talk to us about exactly what's going on at the ABR so that we can kind of get this information out to our young physician section and the residents and fellows out there who might be listening in so that they can kind of understand exactly what's going on behind the core and maintenance of certification and all the challenges that you guys are facing right now and hopefully just have keep this dialogue open between the ABR and all of those out there in practice. Terrific. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening in and a major thank you to Dr. Wagner for taking the time to be with us during this episode. You guys can follow us on Twitter at Houndsfield pod. You can email us at houndsfieldpod at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you and please stay tuned and subscribe for additional episodes coming later this year. Thank you.